Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. As written about and taught in the United States, the history of post-World War II movies often follows this pattern. Italian neorealism and responses to neorealism, the impact of TV, Hollywood spectacle, the French New Wave and responses to the New Wave, Cold War movies, social realism, movies from Sweden, Japan, and China, Hollywood's second golden age, New German cinema, third world cinema, Hong Kong, Bollywood, Australia, and New Zealand, the rise of the blockbuster, the impact of home video, corporate synergy versus independent production, CGI, international co-production, the impact of the internet, and streaming. We might add to this movie-centric list other sociocultural experiences, including civil rights agitation, anti-colonial independence movements, gender and sexuality-based advocacy, various wars, several epidemics, and more than a handful of economic crises. Then, we might sprinkle in some famous and influential people, both inside and outside the arts, like Kennedy, Gandhi, Kubrick, Warhol, Lucas, Thatcher, Reagan, Beyonce. Finally, we drill into specific movie titles and themes we're interested in exploring. Chapter 3 in this idiosyncratic survey of movie history, Rashomon and Experimentation. One reason we turn to great works of art is that these great works of art give us permission to think, imagine, and behave differently than we might naturally do all on our own. Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa from 1950 gave permission to an entire generation of filmmakers and thereafter film goers to absorb and interpret movies as they had not done before, at least not in quite the same way. For myself, the first time I became aware of Rashomon was trying to digest post-war movies in a film studies class as an undergraduate. The introduction to this movie was largely based on trying to imagine how a filmmaker who'd grown up in Imperial Japan through World War II reacted in his young adulthood to the fact of his country's defeat by both retreating into the historic past because Rashomon is not set in the 20th century and then using that historical past to reflect on the nature of how we tell stories. Further, this method of telling stories that are mutually confused and not arriving at a singular point ultimately reveal a theme. And the theme seems to be providing goodness to one another simply because it is the right thing to do regardless of reward. To pull back a notch, though, it is important to realize that by the time we reach the late 1940s into the early 1950s when Rashomon appears, we had already had a generation steeped in classical Hollywood style, which in brief means that we tell a story from beginning to the end, all of it motivated by the actions and decisions of a central protagonist. We're supposed to come away from the experience with a sense of moral authority, what is good, what is evil. We're supposed to have a sense of seamlessness that everything that we see relates to everything that will follow, and that everything ties up into a nice, neat bow by the time the story ends. We're never meant to see microphones or lighting kits, the craft services tray, makeup artists, or the like. Instead, we are asked to suspend our disbelief escape into the narrative universe and enjoy ourselves before the thing ends and we're released to our private everyday lives. This style is a method that has proven to be useful to a wide number of people. 
But something like Rashomon departs from that particular model and explores new territory. Rashomon tells the story of three men trying to wait out a rainstorm in a broken down gate, more like a temple, really. While they're there, they agree to tell stories because two of the three men feel traumatized by a court case that they were witness to earlier in the day. The third man standing under the gate with them simply wants to be entertained to while away the hours until it dries out and he can leave. Whereby, we have various flashbacks to uncover what two of the three men witnessed, which brings them such discomfort. The central event is a bandit encountered a couple, a samurai and his wife, moving across the countryside. What we know for certain is the samurai was killed. We don't know under what circumstances or why this happened, but he is now deceased. As the story is told, we learn the bandit has a point of view about what happened, the wife has a point of view about what happened, and so does the woodcutter. Eventually, a medium will come in to provide testimony from the dead samurai to explain his point of view. Each one of the four stories about what happened in the woods, whether the woodcutter, the wife, the samurai, or the bandit, favor the teller and disfavor the other participants, causing us to not be sure which point of view seems to be most correct. Another way to consider this is imagining that whenever we see a movie, we typically ally ourselves with the point of view of the camera. It is a third party, sometimes omniscient, looking upon the activity before our eyes. Thus, we tend to treat what we see as the truth. Rashomon problematizes that very issue because the point of view or truth from four different perspectives is, in each one of them, seemingly correct. The three men standing under the Rashomon gate waiting out the rain, weigh which of these stories seems to be the most true based on their own personal experiences, knowing that one of the participants, the woodcutter, is in fact standing there trying to suss out the truth of what really happened. And the punchline of the movie is, while these three men are waiting in the rain at the skate, on the other side of the building, a baby has been orphaned. The three men find the child and they try to figure out what to do. The lowly woodcutter decides to bring this child home because he already has a young brood of kids and adding one more to the mix won't hurt. Whereupon the priest feels like there is a renewal in the human spirit. The other man, the commoner, simply wanders away. Having seen Rashomon several times over my life, usually at intervals of about a decade apart, I can report that this time through watching the movie, I'm struck by the way the movie really is about these three people under the gate. It has almost nothing to do, not really, with the flashback structure that is why this movie is celebrated and discussed as a departure from classical style, an achronological, multi-point-of-view stories where there is disagreement about what really happened that finally asks us to determine for ourselves what we think happened based on our own preferences, biases, and the rest. Kurosawa, the filmmaker, was attempting to make a period piece to grapple with certain aspects of his sense of nationhood, his sense of citizenship in the Japanese project, by suggesting that the best thing each of us can do is the most demanding, and that is care for one another. In the example of this movie, the care is provided by a laboring man, a woodcutter, who decides he'll bring an orphaned child home. We don't know why the child was orphaned. We don't know what the circumstances are. We don't know how desperate the woodcutter's life really is. 
but his act of kindness to take this child with him and protect this child as his own is definitely the thematic point of resonance for this movie, especially inside of a civilization, Japanese civilization, that had found itself on the wrong side of a war. All of which is to say, this movie is discussed because of its various stories that tell what happened to the samurai and his wife and the bandit in the woods. I can report that it takes a while to get through some of those stories, and there's a sense of impatience, except for when we see that each story is diverging from the one we've already heard. This carefully laid-in structure involves a series of flashbacks, not just from the gate back to the events in the forest, but from the gate back to the events in the forest to the court that was judging what really happened. And we keep bouncing through this movie's structure, settling into the whodunit kind of capacity of the piece becomes part of its charm and its fun. A couple of things of note that really stand out, though. This is one of the earliest performances of Toshiro Mifune, working for Kurosawa. The pair, leading man and director-filmmaker, would make many movies together over the coming decades, and here he is a virile, beard-scratching, mosquito-slapping, sweating, muscular young guy, versus versions of himself that we would see over the years as he would age in place on screen as one of Kurosawa's angel collaborators. We also see that this movie is a richly embroidered glimpse of how history and production design in the historic past looks to Japanese filmmakers doing things on a shoestring. So, the cast is small. Framing tends to promote those elements in the set and in the costume that need to be amplified for our eyes while cutting off the view of what might be just outside the frame, which I'm imagining probably is modernity. Telephone lines, electrical poles, cars... This movie is very self-consciously about the nature of telling stories to other people. Rashomon is the story of how a movie expresses a story to an audience as the story the movie is expressing to an audience, and we can't ignore that fact. This tautology can be irritating, but it's also enlivening because we are regarding a creative person, Kurosawa, who is allowing us the high regard of his respect. We also should note that this movie is one of the earliest Academy Award-winning movies for foreign language film, and it was perceived upon its release as unusual. Further, the movie took a long time to be released in all global territories, so it really wasn't until we reached the middle 1950s to when Rashomon could become a single phrase to denote a confused, multilinear story that arrives at an ambiguous reality which we are left to interpret. That mold of making a movie is indeed quite experimental. Yet, this gives permission to future creative people to explore a thread or a pathway that is atypical. And to the degree this movie is successful, suggests that those alternatives to the threadbare panels of classical Hollywood style might yet result in satisfactions we hadn't imagined for ourselves until somebody like a Kurosawa provides the model. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boobity-doo!